1960, Dan and Toby Talbot opened the New Yorker Theater on Manhattan's Upper West Side. The theater brought cutting-edge films to the attention of moviegoers in New York City for more than a decade before closing in 1973. Good morning. I'm George Bolarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Toby Talbot recently penned a book about her experiences as the co-owner and self-proclaimed matron of the New Yorker Theater. She and her husband Dan are here this morning to talk about their life together at the movies. And later, photographer Larry Rassiopo talks about his efforts to capture New York City's old movie houses on film. Very few of them are still movie theaters, but they're still beautiful, and they have many different adaptive reuses. But first, we welcome to Cityscape Toby and Dan Talbot. Good morning, Dan. Good morning. And good morning, Toby. Good morning. The two of you are still in the movie theater business. Today, you own and operate Lincoln Plaza Cinemas on Manhattan's west side. You're still there. How different is the cinema business today than it was when you first got into it some 50 years ago? Programming now is a bit less wild than what we did at the New Yorker Theater. At that time, we were experimenting. It was uh, the first time we ever ran a theater, and we didn't exactly know how we were going to proceed. The the bookings were done, I would say, almost uh, extemporaneously, uh, namely films that we wanted to see. Since then, you have a more, I hesitate to use the word regimented, but it probably fits what I'm going to describe, uh, a situation where you have now... uh, the film forum that does very, very sophisticated programming. Uh, You have uh, the Walter Reed Theater uh, that does equally sophisticated uh, programming, but uh, uh, in a different direction. And, of course, the Museum of Modern Art continues to, to be what it is. And then you have the IFC Center down on Waverly Street, which is another kind of programming. And then, of course, there's the film anthology archives over on the east side, which has a a certain agenda of programming. And it's much more sophisticated than what it was 50 years ago. Uh, And you have a generation of, a whole new generation of cinephiles. Cinephiles, another word for movie buffs, I guess. Yes, yes. Now, back in 1960, was the New Yorker Theater in a league of its own? as far as the type of programming you presented in New York City? To some extent, uh, yes. There was another theater up on uh, the Upper West Side, the Thalia. They played mostly European movies, and it was a kind of revolving system. They would play them over and over again. But I think one of the uh, distinctive qualities between movie-going now and movie-going in the 60s was that uh, when we started the New Yorker Theater... It was an introduction to people looking at movies as art. It wasn't just popular entertainment where you went and munched on popcorn and passed a pleasant couple of hours. So it was a kind of stamping ground, a training ground for uh, many young people. Uh, When I went to undergraduate school, every other person was majoring in English. Now if you speak to uh, kids, every other person is majoring in communications or film so it was not that much of a visual era. Uh, you know, it was incipiently. And uh, The New Yorker was a training ground for that. Many of the current uh, film critics uh, were almost students at the theater because they could just 
come and see double bills that they would never have had an opportunity to see before. What kinds of films did you exhibit during those early years? A lot of uh, Hollywood films that we hadn't been seen in a long time. Musicals like Gold Diggers of 1933, 1935, 42nd Street, action movies uh, like uh, White Heat, the Bogart movies and uh, Howard Hawks movies and Hitchcock movies, that was mixed up with uh, a lot of first-run films of new foreign films. This was the period where you had an explosion of cinema due to the French New Wave. There were many wonderful foreign films that uh, didn't get shown in the in the fancier midtown theaters, so... That was the mix. You also introduced American audiences to new German cinema. Did you travel a lot? How did you keep up with what was new and fresh? Well, initially, when we came into distribution, we were just in our movie seats and it came to us. We had seen a film by a a 21-year-old Italian unknown, uh, and we loved the film. It was called Before the Revolution by Bernardo Bertolucci, But the producer didn't want to have uh, this film shown just in our dinky movie house on the Upper West Side. He he needed a distributor. So we said, okay, well, we'll be the distributors. Subsequently, uh, we found ourselves and still find ourselves uh, going to certain festivals, Cannes, which is in May, Berlin in February, and then the Toronto Film Festival. What film are you proudest of having exhibited and distributed? The film that Dan and I just love, and we certainly see it at least annually as if we were going to church or temple, is Tokyo Story by Ozu, the Japanese director. It's a very beautiful film, a very deep and very spiritual film. Let's take a step back for a moment. How do two people with no experience running a movie theater and no experience in film distribution get involved in that line of work? It came about that uh, I needed a job. We had been uh, in Europe for a year in 1959, and we came back. We, we, were, we were completely broke two young kids. Uh, We both had hepatitis, and we were out of circulation for a while. And then, by chance, we uh, met uh, a fellow who had a string of uh, Spanish-speaking movie houses in in the New York area. And he just, uh, he was about to buy, or he bought uh, this theater called the Yorktown, which was on 88th Street in Broadway. And uh, Toby's sister uh, brought us to their accountant. This is the the fellow who owned the the theater. And we persuaded him to let us take a shot at making it into a repertory theater, which he did. So this opportunity fell on fertile ground. What we didn't have was any business experience. I was teaching up at Columbia, so that was very close by. We had three children. So there was an economic necessity, but also uh, the pieces fit. My mother was the candy lady. My father was in the lobby. I was the matron. He was programming all the time. 
So it was a, an urgent family business. Your mom was the candy lady, but she seemed more like a bartender because a lot of people <laughs> just talked to her and laid yes. their problems on her as well, right? Right. Well, including Manny Farber, the uh, film critic. He liked to hang around with her a lot and dedicated his book to her, one of his books. How did the name come about, The New Yorker? It was called the Yorktown, as you mentioned. Yeah. Well, it was a, that, that was partially a, an economic issue because we had on the marquee neon tube letters, and Yorktown had Y-O-R-K, so we were able to salvage four letters, very expensive, those letters, into the New Yorker. What was the Upper West Side like in 1960 when you first opened the New Yorker? The side streets had a lot of drug transactions. Uh, there were hookers. Uh, it wasn't so it wasn't so wise to walk along the streets at night. But it was not at all a a classy neighborhood. You didn't have Victoria's Secret. You didn't have the coach. You didn't have the boutique quality that, for example, Columbus Avenue and Amsterdam Avenue now have. How much did? A movie ticket cost when you opened the New Yorker. Uh, I think it was a dollar thirty-five. A dollar thirty-five. Yeah. Have we come a long way, huh? Yeah, we sure have. But we did have a series where uh, we were so infuriated by people being swayed by critics that we decided to have uh, a series of films. A dollar. The entrance. The entry fee was a dollar. And we opened them on Sundays so critics couldn't have an opportunity to review them before audiences came to see them. There you go. You actually featured quite a few series during your time at The New Yorker. One had to do with May West. You had a May West festival, and you attracted people from all across the country. Were you surprised by that turnout for May West? No. We knew that uh, we, would, we would get a pretty substantial uh, gay audience for it. And there, there were others who were not gay, who, of course, who came to see the, her films, and they were very successful. In fact, we were, there was a fan club, uh, the Mae West Fan Club in New York, and there was a, a president of this fan club who reported to Mae West daily uh, as to the audience reaction to the, to the films. Eventually, Mae West sent us Christmas cards, religious Christmas cards, <laughs> once a year, every year. You know, I, I always did like a man in a uniform. That one fits you grand. I'll just come up sometimes, see me. How much planning went into preparing these types of series? Was it just the two of you getting together and saying, what do we want to show? What do we want to do here? Essentially, it was just impromptu, improvised. It's just really what we want. We ourselves, the two of us, wanted to see. That was the thrust of the programming. You know, we also ought to remember that we're talking about the 60s, a highly political era. And uh, since I was up teaching up at Columbia, when I went up one fine day to give my class, it was barricaded, uh, students jumping around uh, on the uh, around the building. Uh, so that had to seep down. And then there were protests, Vietnam protests on the Upper West Side. How different do you program the Lincoln Plaza cinemas compared to how you programmed the New Yorker Theater? Well, New Yorker was essentially a uh, repertory theater, which was leavened with a lot of first-run films. Lincoln Plaza is uh, 
99.9% first-run films. These are films of the moment, but the name of the game is First Run. At The New Yorker, you had film critics, producers, directors, names like Woody Allen, Martin Scorsese, and Susan Sontag coming quite frequently. Did you get to know these people quite well? Oh, yeah. Yeah, except yes. for Woody Allen. I mean, we didn't get, I can't say that nope. you could get to know him so well. I mean, he, but we, we knew Susan Sontag very well. And yeah, uh, Miles Kruger. He would come in with his big dog, leave the dog with my mother, and run up to the projection booth to record all of these musicals that he'd never even had an opportunity to see. And those recordings are out in California now in his institute. And we all know that Woody Allen came back to film Annie Hall, right? He used actually three of our the- different theaters on the Upper West Side for scenes in his movies. He, we had a theater called the Metro, which was previously the Midtown, and I, I I was in the lobby while he was shooting uh, a sequence. I don't remember what movie it wound up in, but uh, the scene that he shot in uh, the, at the New Yorker Theater wound up in Annie Hall. We saw the Fellini film last Tuesday. It is not one of his best. It lacks a cohesive structure. You know, you get the feeling that he's not absolutely sure what it is he wants to say. Of course, I've always felt he was essentially a, a technical filmmaker. Granted, La Strada was a great film. Great in its use of negative imagery more than anything else. But that central cohesive core, you know, that must lead through an artist's work, leading from one to the other. Screaming his opinions in my ear. You understand what I'm talking about? Like all that Juliet of the Spirits or Satyricon. I found it incredibly indulgent. You know, he really is. He's one of the most indulgent filmmakers. He really is. Keyword here and is without, indulgent. without getting... Let's put it this what are you way. depressed about? I miss my therapy. I overslept. How okay. can you possibly oversleep? The alarm clock. You know the hostile gesture that is to me? I know, because of our sexual problem, right? Everybody online at the New Yorker has to know our rate of intercourse. It's like Samuel Beckett. You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. This morning, we're talking with Toby and Dan Talbot about their life together running movie theaters in Manhattan. Toby recently penned a book about their first theater, The New Yorker, which opened on Manhattan's Upper West Side in 1960. The theater brought cutting-edge films from around the world to moviegoers until it closed its doors in 1973. You mentioned, Toby, the projection booth. And in the book, you write that it takes a certain breed of man to be a projectionist. What kind of person does it take to have that job? Definitely somebody who is not claustrophobic because you are in a, in a very enclosed space. Definitely somebody who can't stand noise because there's a whirring machine. Definitely somebody who doesn't need fresh air. You are alone all day long. And you have to be very alert. And he has to, at the same time, not go crazy. You spend a lot of time in the book talking about the physicality of running a movie theater. For instance, you say that you can never have too much toilet paper. Who knew? Who would know? It's like uh, if you have kids in the house, you can never have enough orange juice. Movies and popcorn, of course, go hand in hand. 
but you two once banished popcorn. We hate it. <laughs> <laughs> you hate it. You hate the flavor. You hate. What do you hate, hate about the it? The smell of it. The, oh, the noise that it's it makes. Mostly the the scrunching. If you sit in your seat and hear people scrunching throughout the film, it's distracting. But you gave in eventually. You brought it we back. We had, had to. to. We had to. We were for. Well, we should mention our guest books. We had a guest book right from the start where people uh, registered what they wanted to see, what their complaints were. But uh, the guest book, uh, when they were informed that we were banning popcorn, uh, there was such a hullabaloo we had no recourse. (laughs) There could have been a, a cinematic revolt in there. And you fortunately saved those guest books, and you could yes. read copies of that in the book, The New Yorker right. Theater. In addition to which, uh, all of our archives, including the guest books and the ledger, are uh, now uh, in, uh, uh, housed at uh, Columbia University. What's worse, people who put their feet up on the chairs or people who stick gum underneath their seats? They're equally bad. They should be banished from the theater. <laughs> you had great seats. At the New Yorker Theater, seats that came from the Roxy. Am yes, I right? We paid a dollar a dollar a seat. We bought a thousand seats, and, and there were also banquettes, uh, red banquettes, scarlet banquettes at the in the lobby. As far as cinephiles are concerned, you also write in the book, Toby, that they tend to have their favorite spots in a theater. You, for instance, like the aisle seat. How come? If you go to a film festival, for example, and uh, program yourself to see seven or eight films a day, you have to be prepared that if one of them doesn't work after 20 minutes or a half hour, to be able to leave and go catch another alternative. So it's much more convenient to be on the aisle rather than molesting a lot of people on your way out. I tend to like the aisle seat also for the same reason. Black and white versus color. I think we're both fans of black and white, uh, but on the other hand, there have been absolutely gorgeous films that... uh, Red Desert, for example. Yes, uh, or Red Shoes. You know, there are so many films that have been made glorious by color. But since we were uh, more or less uh, nurtured on black and white, we associate cinema with black and white. Uh, But I would not be programmatic about that. What was the most successful run you had at the New Yorker Theater? Actually, it was Tokyo Story. It ran uh, eight weeks. That was very, uh, very heartwarming. What was the first movie you ever showed there? Henry V with Laurence Olivier. And uh, The Red Balloon, which is a short film about a a French child and his uh, relationship with the Red Balloon. And what film closed the theater? Uh, Yes. uh, We conveniently seem to forget I was going to say, this is very telling. (laughs) This is very telling. It was a good film, and I'm just blanking out. Closing the theater was a point of contention for you two, right? Toby, you weren't happy about this decision. Not at all. Uh, And the theater was doing very well. Other theaters around the country were copying our programs. Uh, My mother was happy at the candy stand. Uh, Everything was in place. But Dan has a tendency when he knows how to do something rather easily, he gets tired of it and wants to move on to something else, except for his marriage. (laughs) But also... uh, 
by that time, we were quite deeply invested in distribution, and uh, it wasn't easy to give a great deal of effort to distribution and at the same time run the theater. And obviously you can't give it up because here you are continuing at the Lincoln Plaza Cinema. Right. Toby, you wrote this book and you dedicated it to your husband here. Why now? Why, after all of these years, the theater closed in 1973? Why was this the time for you to sit down and write this book about this theater? That's a good question. I suppose one fine day I began looking through the ledger of the films that we played, and each one was a rather a kind of trigger uh, of associations around the theater and the people around the theater, uh, so that it occurred to me that I just wanted to get this all down as a kind of legacy. Uh, the greatest pleasure would be the people that we knew who went there. I could add to that that, uh, you know, Toby is written many books. She's uh, uh, published novels and children's books and nonfiction books. And I think you could say that here, here was an instance of a subject in search of an author. Oh, that's very well put. The book is The New Yorker Theater and Other Scenes from a Life at the Movies. Toby and Dan Talbot, thank you so much for coming in. Thanks for having us. Thank you. The book, The New Yorker Theater, is out now from Columbia University Press. Long before the age of the movie rental, New York City was home to more than a thousand movie theaters. They were often referred to as movie palaces because of their ornate exteriors and elaborate interiors. Although a majority of these theaters have been demolished, many have been converted into things like bingo parlors and health clubs. Larry Resiopo has taken photographs of several of the city's former movie palaces in varying states. We invited him to our studios to tell us about his efforts. As you drive around the city, as I do, you just start seeing them, these giant hulking buildings that you know were movie theaters. Some of the movie theaters I went to when I was younger, and some I've just seen by the architecture, some I've read about, some people have told me about, but they're everywhere. New York City was uh, a great city for going to the movies. These theaters, Larry, were built during a different time period in New York City when going to the movies was a big affair. You even got all dressed up, right? You wore a jacket and tie. There was a men's smoking lounge or ladies' lounge. Like at the Lowe's Kings, they're still there. The Lowe's is another very famous theater in Brooklyn. One of the histories of the movie theater is that they developed in Times Square and followed the subway out into the neighborhoods. So if you go up along any of the major subways, like on the Grand Concourse or the major thoroughfares, you'll see these these beautiful movie theaters. And very few of them are still movie theaters but they're still beautiful, and they have many different adaptive reuses. Like what? Churches is one of the biggest ones. Another one you see very often is actually bingo parlors, especially the smaller theaters. There are many gyms, 
and another big use is supermarkets. One of my favorite ones is the actual theater in Park Slope, Brooklyn, called The Prospect that's now a C-Town. I remember waiting online to go in to see Davy Crockett. And now it's a C-Town, and part of it is like a residential co-op. And one of the hardest parts is not the photography, but the actual get, getting permission, getting access. I can do the exteriors from the street, but that's just really the smallest part of the story. So for this particular C-Town, the owner was a little shy, but then he saw I was serious. I brought him some other images, and he said, okay. And the way to get in was I had to go up two stories through the soda cooler. So you go up this ladder, and you come up, and you're on the balcony. And the projection booth is behind me. All the seats are still there, all the ornamental sculpture. And I look forward, I can see the proscenium where the screen used to be. And I can see the drop ceiling for the supermarket, like the white acoustic tile. I can hear the music from the supermarket. So above the supermarket, the theater still exists. Half of the theater, right? The, the supermarket is in what would be the orchestra, I guess, and they level the floor. And then because it's, it's costly to do demolition, you just leave it. You mentioned that some of these old movie theaters have been converted into houses of worship. One is the Second Canaan Baptist Church, and this is located in Harlem, right? Right, right. It's on Adam Clayton Powell Boulevard in Harlem, right near Central Park. And often the churches are beautiful, what they do with the um, theater. What do they do to maintain the historic integrity of those theaters? I would imagine they don't get rid of the seats because they need the seats. Right. And they also very often appreciate some of the architectural details, but it's funny what, what happens. Now, in um, Catholic theology, there's a very vague figure called a cherub. It's not really an angel. And so there were all these columns in one of the churches called the um, Regent, which is another church in Harlem, and they had these very big ornamental columns with cherubs on them so someone had the idea to paste cardboard wings on them to turn them into angels. So you go up, you go up this 30-foot column, and they're all covered cherub into angel figures. Spray-painted gold, very beautiful. Perhaps the most famous instance is the uh, Valencia Theater, which is now the House of Prayer for All Peoples in Jamaica. It's a very famous theater, one of the five wonder theaters that Lowe's did in 1929 and 1930. Why were they called the Wonder Theaters, do you know? I think because they were wonderfully made. They were, had very, uh, they were huge 3,000-seat theaters, incredible detail, and they were meant to give you a feeling of wonder, I believe. I'm, I'm not a, I've learned a lot in doing the photography, but I'm not really an historian. So tell us more, then, about this theater that yeah. you were so mentioning. This, so this famous one, the Valencia, above the proscenium were all these Art Nouveau nudes. And when the congregation had the money to renovate the theater, while all the scaffolding was up, they put wings and dresses, like kind of a cheesecloth, gauze dress, over the figures so they became angels. You have some that you photographed that were converted into auto repair shops, right? Right. I mean, the uses are just endless. It, very often the theaters are neighborhoods pre-gentrification, and any use that people could make of the buildings was was good, I think. They would buy the buildings for relatively low money. And one particular building, the, the old Chester Theater on Boston Road in the Bronx, has a, a restaurant, a lounge. And on the side, right through the side of the theater, you would drive right into the orchestra seats, which have been removed, is an auto repair place. And they just cut a lot of the architectural details at about 10 feet. And the shreds of it are still hanging. And you have a place to repair cars. 
It's, it's open, it's clear. And if you look, you can see the proscenium with the beautiful uh, Art Nouveau keystone. And if you look in the other direction, you can see the entire balcony and the projection booth. It's just there. You brought with you to the studio a blown-up photograph here. What are we looking at in this photograph? Oh, in this photograph, this is a, another relatively famous theater in Brooklyn called Lowe's Pitkin. It was another huge theater, and I'm photographing in disrepair. And you can see the collapsed ceiling is completely gone. There's just metal and plaster hanging, and the proscenium is half gone. There's mixtures of Roman, Italianate, Arabic motifs in all of these theaters. The architects kind of just threw everything in plus a kitchen sink to create these, these kind of unnatural but beautiful areas. One of the things when I do these photographs, I photograph with an old camera that in which I use an eight I shoot with eight by ten inch color negative film and they're meant to be blown up really big so you can see the detail. The picture George is talking about is a forty by fifty inch print. And I've had some done as big as sixty by eighty inches. And are these photographs online at all for people to view? Well, I'm actually hoping that you'll put one or two of the ones I sent you on WFUV's um, website. Actually, we'll put them on our Facebook page Okay, for people to see. WFUV's Cityscape on Facebook. Okay. This work has been supported by a few not-for-profits, the Graham Foundation and the New York State Council on the Arts. And also, a year I worked heavily on this, I had a Guggenheim Fellowship. And as part of the, the grants, you have to have a public benefit. So I've exhibited the work in, in pieces, never the entire body of work. And I gave a portfolio of 100 photographs to the photography collection at the New York Public Library. And some of that has been digitized. I'm not sure how much of that is online, but the portfolio is in the photography collection. Anyone who's interested can see it. And hopefully a book is forthcoming, right? Fingers crossed, days. Larry. One of these days, George. <laughs> Larry Rasiopo, thank you so much for coming in. Always a pleasure. Larry Rasiopo is a New York City photographer. We posted some of the photographs he's taken of the city's former movie palaces on our Facebook page. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Bodarki. My thanks to producer Skylar Srivastava. Have a great weekend.